Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We have a powerful worker for world healing with us here today for Spirit in Action. Her name is Monique Morris, and I spoke to her back three years ago about her book, Push Out, dealing with the way that the U.S. disproportionately pushes minority girls out of school and into a destructive track for their lives. When Gail Leander Wright sent me Monique's latest book, I was excited because it's rich with inspirational stories of those doing the work to find an alternative to the damage done to our girls. The book is Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls, and I was and am doubly excited because Monique Morris is not only passing the words to us, she's telling the saga with rhythm and blues interludes. So I'm going to do the best I can, and I know that Monique could do it tremendously better, given the deep feeling for the music and artistry that she conveys in the book. I'll do my best to capture at least a piece of the R&B and the soul and the passion by sharing some clips of music related to textual interludes between sections of the book. We'll be hearing clips performed by Fantasia, Queen Latifah, and Billie Holiday. But first, we're going to start this interview with Monique W. Morris off with Coco Taylor, and she's going to blast us off with I'm a woman, and then we'll get Monique on the phone. First, Coco Taylor. When I was a little girl, only 12 years old, I couldn't do nothing to save my doggone soul. Monique, how great to be back with you after three years. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing well. Last time I had you here for Spirit in Action was in 2016. That was, I guess it was in the follow-up to your release of Push Out. It seems to me that in the following three years, the uh, stuff that you chronicle in your newest book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, it seems to me that you must spend very little time at home. How true is that? <laughs> Actually, I spend quite a bit of time at home, but I do also spend quite a bit of time on the road exploring this work that is in support of our girls and their educational opportunity. So it's a labor of love. It's okay, and my family understands, so I'm thankful for that. Well, what I recall from our conversation back in 2016 is at that time you had two teenage daughters, I think maybe 11 or 12, and one of them and the other one was maybe 14, something like that. And so they're now three years older. Does that have anything to do with your traveling, pro or con? You know, a lot of times my girls are with me to the extent that they can be. I definitely take into consideration not being gone for too long and rushing back home to my family, my daughters and my husband. 
You said your daughters travel with you. You speak to a lot of groups, including a lot of youth groups, a lot of teenage girls. Do your daughters get to be involved in this too? I would think it would be in some ways a a very positive thing to be able to be listening within the family and outside of the family, you know, builds the family, I guess. Definitely. My daughters have, you know, really grown up with me in this work. And so they've had an opportunity to hear me speak, but also to participate in conversations around the country and sometimes even outside of the country with girls who talk about their educational experiences, who talk about life experiences. Sometimes they contribute their own experiences. You know, I'm I'm raising two girls who sometimes grapple with many of the issues that I talk about more broadly. And so it is an opportunity for them to connect with a broader community around how they can build out an advocacy agenda that incorporates their voices, explores their opportunities for intervention, and engage their own creative energy in documenting this work or helping me document this work. One of my daughters is an artist and illustrated several vignettes from Push Out that I used on the road that she has been able to use in her conversations about educational equity. And my other daughter is a photographer and often captures moments of me and others involved, you know, in conversation with girls around the country. That's wonderful to be able to do that. I I think one of the bad things about our world so much is we tend to segment ourselves by age, so there's not cross-generational connection, friendships, and I think the learning goes in both directions. So I think having your daughters there must be really wonderful in terms of helping keeping that communication going. Oh, I agree. And, you know, I learn a lot from them every day. <laughs> so it's, um, you know, it's an important process of, parenting and and being in community around these issues to make sure that we're receptive to the lessons that young people teach us. So uh, in the same way that I'm receptive to co-constructing learning spaces with girls uh, and talking about ways of doing that, I certainly, you know, don't leave my family and my own daughters out of that conversation. Of course. Now, you're located in the Bay Area, I believe, in California. I am. I'm wondering if what you report in so many different schools across the country, if you experience the same thing in your area. Definitely. I incorporate stories and narratives from the work that happens in the Bay Area as well as in communities across the country. And I think the intention is just to demonstrate that we're all in this together, (laughs) that you know we've all inherited certain constructs and ideas that are worth dismantling and that there are opportunities to explore what's working in different communities, hopefully, you know, with the intention of being able to replicate some of those efforts or transfer some of the learnings to different communities. So you'll you'll find in my, you know, most recent work a description of some of the programs and strategies that are located in the Bay Area, as well as those that are located in Ohio and, you know, in other places as well. The book, again, is called Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls. And I was just hoping that you were going to report that there is considerable more wisdom going on in the Bay Area than elsewhere. I think every place is a work in progress. And I think (laughs) that while there is certainly wisdom here in the Bay Area, there's wisdom across the country. You know, there are people who are committed very deeply to transforming conditions in our schools and in communities and in homes around the country. Part of what I think facilitates an opportunity for us to talk about the wisdom that does 
sometimes organically live in these communities is the climate that we create to invite them to share what they know and to invite them into conversations about how they've been practicing different ways of communicating with our girls and engaging with our girls. We've certainly been having the conversation about girls for a long time, but we've also been having conversations about boys for a long time. And many of the things that I critique in Push Out about ways of constructing a public narrative that has erased or sort of relegated to the sidelines the conditions that impact girls, particularly black girls and other girls of color, is certainly prevalent here as well. Even though we do have many positive practices and encouraging, promising strategies to make sure our girls are not left behind. There are communities that have responded to developing an infrastructure to support girls in the Bay Area as well as outside that I think are worthy of note. And, you know, I hope that folks will recognize that it's not that, you know, the Bay Area has a particularly high level of engagement around some of these issues. It's that we have facilitated a climate where many of us who are involved in this work refuse to be silenced (laughs) on these issues. So we have been able to implement some promising strategies and approaches here that I think are worth sharing. But again, I really have seen programs and strategies working in communities across the country, you know, some in Iowa, some in Rochester, some, you know, in the South that really do amplify the way in which people are responding to the conditions that I describe in Push Out and, you know, that continue to be an issue for many of our girls. And actually, that fact that you were looking at solutions, ways to attack the problem, ways to find energy to help for a better future, that's one of the things that especially motivated me to want to speak to Monique Morris again. When Gail Leander Wright contacted me and said, she's got this book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, and I started glancing through it. The fact that you have these vignettes, I guess I'd say, of all these places across the country, and that you do it with this musical dance going on in our back of our minds, that made me excited. I hadn't known when I talked to you last time, you know, three years ago, that you had such a wonderful connection to dance as I do. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, I think the arts are a critical part of one's being, however it manifests. We're all beings that should and or could respond, you know, to the arts in various ways. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have. But God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. Yes, the strong gets more while the weak ones fade. Empty pockets don't ever make the grave. Mama may have. But God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. I wanted to ask you about ACEs, because when I read as you wrote about it, 
I sensed kind of competing attitudes in you, and maybe I was projecting them, so they may not have been your attitudes, they may have been mine. One of the issues is when you start looking at people's trauma, there is the danger that they'll sink into it or that they'll get labeled or in various ways it will prevent their future growth. So I'm really looking for your input what you think uh, about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and the gathering of them. It seems like it's necessary, that it can be helpful, but it is fraught with certain dangers. So I think what you were sensing was not necessarily a tension or competing interest, but a recognition of how sometimes our own sort of human frailties and limitations might misinform how we interpret the ACEs or Adverse Childhood Experiences, ACE uh, is, is what you were referring to. So the Adverse Childhood Experiences survey is a tool that was popularized by Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris to help us capture some pretty severe elements of disruption in childhood. They include a scale, but certainly an opportunity for us to map how children are experiencing trauma and how that might inform how they perform in school, how they are developing physically, if there's some emotional disruption that might inform how adults can respond to them. In Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues, I really try to acknowledge that we should be aware of this childhood trauma, that schools can participate in the mapping of childhood trauma through the ACEs survey, but that we shouldn't use these bits of information to either just hold on to and reinforce whatever biases we might hold or stereotypes that we might hold about a particular community, but to use it as an opportunity to better construct intervention strategies that are responsive to the trauma rather than ignore it. Yeah, that was what I had the sense of. Yeah. So where has the use of ACEs, uh, ACEs, where has this been implemented and is there any kind of measure of effectiveness or is it being used well or badly? Uh, Do we have a sense of that yet? Well, National Crittenden, which is an agency nationwide that works with mostly young women and girls who have been systems involved have been using the ACEs survey for quite a while. They use it in some of their educational programming. There are several schools that, with the guided help of a professional, also work to implement the ACEs survey with particular classes of youth in order to, again, build out a more robust response to the various traumas and disruptions that young women and girls are experiencing. What we know is that girls have a higher ACE score than boys across the board, and that many of the things that facilitate the traumas that our girls are experiencing are things that we can respond to and provide, you know, sort of support their capacity to be resilient against. So, you know, the other piece to the ACEs survey is building out responses to that in the form of increasing the resilience of those communities to become what Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris calls an ACEs buffer so that we can try to intervene in a critical, at a critical point and in a critical way to support girls' well-being, to protect them against other harms that are disruptive to their lives, much of which look like the physical and sexual harm that girls are disproportionately experiencing, much of which you know, look like the um, exposure to violence and dehumanization that girls who are systems involved experience, the you know, relationships 
with family that can cause disruption and, you know, sort of instability in their lives, things like addiction, things like, you know, that, that many communities are, are dealing with, but we don't name them and so we don't respond to them in a critical way. The idea with Sing a Rhythm, Dance a Blues is that schools, instead of being places that can facilitate harm, you know, a lot of young people who experience high levels of childhood trauma are the young people who may act out in school or who may have disruptions that inform how they're performing in school. So instead of seeing these kids as poor performers and kids with an attitude or, you know, girls who just don't want to be here, quote unquote, we should be responding in a way that can facilitate a space where they know that school can be a safe place for them to heal, a safe place for them to learn, a safe place for them to build out relationships with adults that can become those ACE buffers. So the invitation is for us to see the function of a school as more than just a place where people learn how to count or how to, you know, learn historical narratives and other critical information for their well-being, but to recognize that young people won't even be receptive to learning those things until they feel safe enough to learn. And that the kids who get in trouble the most are typically the kids who feel the unsafest in their lives. So, you know, I said in the TED Talk that I gave on this topic that it's important for us to consider ways to bring young people in crisis closer rather than pushing them away. And right now, what we've been doing with our punitive disciplinary practices has been to push those who are experiencing this kind of disruption as far away from us as possible, which just allows the pain to fester and get worse. In Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues, my discussion around ACEs, my discussion around alternatives to the suspensions, expulsions, etc., is for us to think about ways of bringing young people in closer. When we bring them in closer, it's important for us to provide a safe space for them to tell us about their traumas, but we also then have a responsibility to respond to that trauma and to build out a network of professionals and folks who can help us do that well. So it may not be that the teacher is then the person who ultimately is responsive to the particular traumas of a young person, but our schools should be developed in such a way that they do have the relationships with those folks who can provide that kind of help to our young people so that they can disrupt the harm and pain that they're experiencing and they can return to their own journey of becoming this scholar and thoughtful intellectual that uh, I think all young people really want to be. And can you flesh out for me a little bit? And I know you do it in the book. Again, you want to find Monique W. Morris. You go to her website, moniquewmorris.me, not com, but dot me. And you'll find out about her four books, I believe. A Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues is simply the newest one, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls. Can you spell out for us what some of the responses to how things actually get implemented to handle the information that's gathered via the ACEs? There are schools, there's a classroom, you know, that I'm very familiar with that has mapped the ACE or the ACEs survey of their young people and discovered, for example, that 90% of the girls in their classroom, and this is in an alternative learning space, had an ACES score of five or more. Typically, what we understand with the survey and the the recognition of childhood traumas is that it's a scale of one to ten, and young people who have a score of four or more are more likely to experience some of the life disruptions that can lead to negative long-term physical, emotional, and mental health outcomes. 
it can also lead to a lifetime of institutionalization or being touched by the criminal legal system, given the way that our current criminal legal system is constructed to respond to some medical conditions like addiction as a criminal action. So, you know, it is important to understand those things, even at this early stage of beginning to map it with young people, if we want to become effective ACE buffers. So what people have done is taken the information from the survey and then said, okay, if I know that my classroom is filled with girls who have these really high ACE scores, then I need to construct a way of learning and a way of being in these spaces that can provide the maximum opportunity for them to return to themselves and to feel safe enough to learn in my space. Because what we know is that young people who don't feel safe are constantly, the the way the human brain is wired, they're constantly thinking of a way to protect themselves. They're constantly thinking of a way to, you know, respond to the harm or danger that they're feeling. So what we try to do and, and what this classroom has done is to create spaces where young people can then have a place in the classroom for them to have a quiet time if they need to have a quiet time. This particular classroom called it the safe place where it was just a, a couch and young people could go sit there if they needed to sit there and it was not considered a disruption if they went to go sit there. It was a recognition that they might have been triggered by something in the material and needed a time to go sit on the couch to have a moment of reflection and engagement without leaving the classroom. And so there's no critical loss of instruction time. It's just a, a movement to a different space in the classroom so that they could feel more comfortable in their bodies around the learning. There are ways in which this classroom has constructed lesson plans where they're reading material that might not otherwise be triggering to students who may not be survivors of various forms of violence. For those who are survivors of various forms of violence, um, there's an opportunity to think through reflection pieces so that young people don't just have to read about war or read about gun violence in a text and be divorced from it and read it as text, but recognize that for some people, reading about war and reading about some of this material can trigger their own stress and trigger their own traumas in a way that, you know, require them to heal. And so they build out opportunities for young people to process how they themselves have experienced personal violence or physical violence or people in their communities have experienced violence and then they use it as an opportunity to engage them in advocacy activities or talk through that material as they're processing the text. But the idea is that you're building out connections with the material that you're teaching in a way that doesn't provide an irresponsible triggering of trauma, but that ultimately, you know, really provides young people with this information in a way that flags for them that the adult teaching this material cares about their well-being so that they can feel safe enough to process the information alongside their classmates in a non-disruptive way. I've been in classrooms where, you know, girls have been reading texts about war in books that are considered classics and, you know, they are processing the material and the educator does not see sort of the subtext that's happening in the classroom. I was in a classroom once where they were reading about a, a soldier who got stabbed. And there was a girl who said, I've been stabbed, right? And the educator might have heard it, but she didn't acknowledge that she heard it. So the girl repeated, I said, I've been stabbed. And she said it so many times that other girls in the classroom were like, what does it feel like to be stabbed? And they started having a sub-conversation that, you know, the educator ultimately was like, I don't have time to talk about this, but I thought that was a missed opportunity. Um, and in the observation of this classroom, I recognized that the girls were hungry for an opportunity to process 
what it felt like to experience this kind of violence. The girl who had experienced this kind of violence was clearly demonstrating that she was triggered by it, and it was an opportunity for us to think about how we can construct a, a classroom learning session that really humanizes those who experience this kind of violence, but also recognize that it's not something we want to continually trigger among our students in the name of teaching a classic, quote-unquote. We want to respond to the kinds of violence that are too prevalent in our communities and that can facilitate other forms of aggression and violence in the learning space and, you know, do it in a way that, you know, really does provide an opportunity for these young people to, you know, heal and to create new futures for themselves. And I think it's, it's totally possible, you know, that's one example, two examples of how schools are thinking about using the material around the traumas that are mapped through the ACE score in a way to, you know, facilitate new lesson plans or curriculum-based discussions that still meet the requirements of what they need to teach that day, but that do it in a way that facilitate the maximum opportunity for healing among their students. I think I asked you this last time that I had you on, Monique, but I'm not quite positive. You are a doctor of education, and that's as opposed to having a PhD in education. And I had to look online to see what that meant and says that a doctor of education is a professional doctorate best suited for experienced educators and mid to senior level working professionals want to lead and implement change within their organization. Certainly what you're trying to do, you're certainly providing good fuel and energy and insight for it in Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, and with Push Out. How would your focus be different if you were a PhD in education? I don't know how someone with a PhD might engage my work differently than I have chosen to do it because what one chooses, you know, there, there are certainly those with a PhD in education who, while, you know, are rooted in educational theory, have also sought to engage it in practical terms and, you know, try to reflect on the experience and actions associated with their developed theory of engagement. Likewise, I engage in practical discussions about change and sort of structural engagement, but also, you know, conduct research in this, in this area. So I really think it depends more on the person and their particular research interests and methods than it does on the terminal degree that they have earned. You talk, again, about various facets and various aspects of education that make a difference and that could make a difference if they were more widely applied. One of the things that you talk about in fair length is corporal punishment. Currently, I think that for most schools in the United States, that's illegal. I I looked online and it said 31 states prohibit corporal punishment, but 19 states allow it specifically. I grew up believing that corporal punishment was not allowed in school. I I was actually rather appalled to find out that it was allowed in a number of states. Talk about the role of corporal punishment in positive or negative outcomes. I don't think corporal punishment should be anywhere. (laughs) And it certainly shouldn't be in school anywhere in a country that declares itself as free and in places that are calling themselves locations for young people to learn how to be in the world. We know that black girls are disproportionately represented among those students uh, alongside black boys who experience corporal punishment, which means that they are experiencing violence in response to their activities 
and then we wonder why they might engage in violent behaviors in other spaces. You know, violence teaches violence. So I think, you know, that there are a host of negative outcomes associated with corporal punishment, you know, a higher sense of anxiety, poor academic performance, lack of connection with schools. There's nothing good about <laughs> corporal punishment. And yet, you know, we've sort of talked about it as if it's a thing that should continue. I think like you, I remember hearing whispers in my school days about corporal punishment and how the educators might physically discipline students um, or had previously disciplined students in the schools that I attended. I remember thinking then, as I do now, that's ridiculous. And I also know, though, that there are young people that I've had conversations with recently who have experienced corporal punishment. You know, I just think it's an unconscionable way for us to engage young people at the prime of their learning experience to think that it's going to have a positive outcome on behaviors. One thing that I talk about in Singer Rhythm, Dance of Blues, and that I fundamentally believe is that so much of our policies of how we engage young people has been driven by these feelings of fear and these ideas about intimidation. You know, I don't believe that young people thrive when they are in spaces of intimidation. I think what they learn is how to intimidate. What they don't learn is how to cultivate their own feelings and sense of engagement and to recognize the value that they have inherently. My strategy in, in thinking about, and this is my approach to a number of things, including parenting, is that when you invest with the intention of facilitating love and growing that out as the primary way of reaching young people, then they reflect the best of who they are. They don't reflect an intimidation space. They don't lead with fear or the things that come from that feeling of fear, the harm that can fester in spaces of isolation and the ways that they might perpetuate harm outside of their own negative lived experiences. But they begin to understand that they are worthy of our engagement and respond accordingly. Set high expectations, move through with young people, and they, by and large, respond favorably to that. And I think most educators know that. I think that, you know, there's this culture that we have that we're still pushing up against that has historically said that the way to reach young people is through physical harm and reprimand. And I just feel that's completely antiquated. Well, it certainly is something a lot of people were raised with. I think you know I'm Quaker um, pacifism just makes sense to me, right? <laughs> I, so what you're saying is native to the way I think. So when I looked at the list of 19 states that allow corporal punishment, most of them are deep red states and they're states where slavery was embraced and allowed. And I'm just wondering what kind of correlation there exists between corporal punishment and places that thought slavery was an okay thing. Well, you know, I haven't done that particular study. My sort of anecdotal response to that is that in places where there is a dehumanization and a devaluing of life, those are places where the idea about intimidation and physical violence thrive. And that's not to say that southern states do not have schools in them that do not practice corporal punishment, or, and it's not to say that 
southern states and many of these places that have historically been part of the facilitation of harm through the enslavement of African peoples do not have a responsibility to reconcile that history. I think they do. But I do also think that it's important to recognize that we are dealing with the cultural vestiges of a deeply, deeply harmful, heinous, brutal system that has left many people with this learned, lived experience around brutality as a way to alter behavior, as a way to signal a need for change. And that's the kind of intimidation that then leads to the teaching of how to do that, how to move that forward in the world, as opposed to thinking about all the alternatives that can be put in place. I definitely think that the way that we engage around brutality and intimidation and physical harm is something that is learned and something that can be unlearned. It is not an easy thing. You definitely brush up against the cultural norms to say, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to think about something different. But I'm encouraged by the places that are thinking about it that way, that are saying, we don't want to beat our kids into submission. (laughs) What we want to do is think about ways of understanding how young people actually learn to really wrap our own heads around the emergent neuroscience about the developing adolescent to really think about what the brain is doing when we beat a human body versus what the brain is doing when we love a human and express that in ways that shine a light on all the things that are possible as opposed to suppressing the things that we think are an affront to our own authority. How we teach without our ego driving the conversation, but how we engage in a way that facilitates the maximum opportunity for young people to be co-constructors of their own learned experience so that they're not seen. We don't use this language around them being seen and not heard, but we want to hear them. (laughs) We want to hear them. We want to (laughs) engage them and we want to learn from what it is that they have to tell us. So it is about shifting a mindset. I do appreciate that the particular states that have the hardest time letting go of this practice are also living with the most immediate vestiges of slavery But we also really have to recognize that this, you know, just because these are places that have been the locations where there was this practice of this brutal enslavement of African people doesn't mean that the kinds of violence, the social emotional violence, the kinds of harm that is often experienced by girls and other students of color in schools doesn't happen outside of the South, right? (laughs) It happens across the country. You bet. We're going to talk more with Monique Morris about all aspects of her book, Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls. But I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action. This is Northern Spirit Radio production. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website, and Monique's website is MoniqueWMorris.org. M-E. We have that link on Northern Spirit Radio. You can just, of course, Google her name and you'll get there too. But if you come by northernspiritradio.org, you'll have the added benefit of seeing the stations where we broadcast. You'll have an opportunity to place comment about this interview, other interviews, all of them from since 2005. And we've talked to a really immense number of people doing good for the world, healing the world in so many ways, peace and justice, environmental, and so many 
many ways. So if you come via NorthernSpiritRadio.org, you'll be able to hear all of those programs from all those years. And there's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported, not by corporations, not by government, but by you, the listener. So please help us. And first of all, even before you help us, help the local media wherever you are. And that means community radio stations. There's some 40 of them across the nation carrying our programs. There's local newspapers. There's so many people getting out words that the corporate media has no reason to pass on. So please help get that out and read a book like Sing a Rhythm, Dance Blues, and so many ways that you can help make this world a better place and help provide the energy to move it forward. Now, again, we're talking to Monique Morris, and you were just talking about some of the aspects, the alternatives to, I think, also corporal punishment. I wanted to share a little bit of my experience with it. One of the things was I was a Peace Corps volunteer for two years in Togo in West Africa. I taught in a lycée, a high school in, from the French system. I was the odd duck in that school. All the other school teachers were Togolese. And they had no compunctions at all about using corporal punishment. And it made me sick to my stomach. I mean, you know, just watching what they would do in which they had no problems encouraging Of course, when you live in a system like that, you take it for granted that that's what can happen or that, you know, of course you're going to get beat if you do this. It was just having watched it on the ground, I was horrified. But of course, then I was raised in a different environment. The vision you're talking about, Monique, is really about within the United States, where hopefully our educational system can advance and improve itself. The lessons that you're trying to share here about, of course, not only not using corporal punishment, but not using the push-out method, suspensions, and then expulsion as punishment for someone who doesn't match up to the standards. Are there other countries that are modeling that we can learn from that are being put into place in the United States? Well, I will say just in response to the Togo example that you gave that locations that have been sites for deep historical oppression continue to exacerbate the harms from that oppression generations after we recognize there to be an end to that. So the history of imperialism and colonialism certainly did not come without consequence. And the teachings of Brutal responses to young people is not something that has been historically associated with many communities, but was a function of much of the harms historically that came to those communities. And I would say the same thing. It's, it's sort of like the conversation about the structure and institution of slavery that we just had, that when we see locations that are part of what I call the tapestry of harm in a community's life, that unless we set our intentions to shift that engagement, then it just continues and can spiral if we let it, which is partly why I wrote Sing a Rhythm Dance of Blues, because I want to try to at least play my part in helping us to think through how we interrupt this before it spirals into something that we don't recognize anymore in our schools. You know, we have this narrative around corporal punishment, which is one of the more egregious ways that we see this play out, but we still see violence you know, the same way that you were horrified with what you saw, that's how horrified many of us are when we watch a police officer turn a girl upside down in her chair and throw her across the classroom. 
that's as horrified as we feel when we see educators and officers in schools pulling girls' hair and hoisting them up and throwing them to the ground and breaking their bodies in the name of keeping safety. It, it just doesn't make sense. And so when we're thinking about what we can do to disrupt this, part of what I have tried to do is share um, not just a way of thinking from, you know, global perspectives that have moved beyond this construct of, you know, engaging law enforcement and other instruments of surveillance to come into learning spaces to try to create a sense of safety, but to think about how safety is something that can be co-constructed and built out with those young people that they're seeking to engage. In Singer Rhythm Dance of Blues, I document two locations, one in Nigeria and one in Costa Rica, that are working with black and brown girls to engage differently in this idea of education. In Nigeria, I talk about the work of Falawe Omikunle, who's been doing lots of really great work to build out a narrative around how young people can be treated with love and how they're increasing the capacity of educators who come from some of the ethnic groups in Nigeria to work more effectively with young people who have not had access to a great degree of education. In Costa Rica, I document how restorative practices, which the U.S., many schools in the U.S. are adopting and engaging, that really, you know, originate in some of the indigenous practices in, you know, the U.S. as well as in Australia and New Zealand to facilitate this opportunity for us to talk about harm when it's been committed and the repair of harm between individuals, but also, I argue, between individuals and institutions. So in Costa Rica, there is a a nationwide effort to implement restorative practice in schools, to think about how we can build out spaces where young people who are harmed in the school or who commit harm in the school are not automatically disregarded, but rather engaged as young people who need to learn how to be in community with each other. Some of this is, you know, it's it's an old way. So we talk about it as a new practice, but it's really an old, old practice. When I talk about the ways of restoring one's engagement, I raise two things that I think are important considerations for us. One is to consider the ways in which repair happens outside of maybe a single modality. Most of our schools love to engage in circles, And the circles are a powerful method of building out community and staying true to some of the traditions of demonstrating what community feels like. But it's also important to recognize that some of the repair and restoration that needs to happen may not happen in a circle. It may be an individual process or a process that begins with individual engagement and reflection and work before they enter the circle. Um, It may be through the use of arts, dance, music, visual arts, and engagement, storytelling that can help to facilitate some of that healing that we need. I also think that it's important for us to think about how we build out this broader narrative around what restoration requires of us. You know, sort of one of the elements of building out restorative practice that I think is particularly effective in schools is around this idea that if we are going to invite a conversation about how to repair harms, then we need to be true to our conversation by ensuring that we talk about all the ways in which schools have historically been a part of the tapestry of harm but can shift to be part of the tapestry of healing. And so, you know, I think ultimately for me, this is a conversation about how we build out schools that are locations 
for just that purpose. Some people call me a hobo. Some call me a bum. Nobody knows my name. Nobody knows what I've done. I'm as good as any woman in your town. restorative practices, restorative justice, and using that to nurture schools in Sing Rhythm, Dance the Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls by Monique W. Morris here today for Spirit in Action. We're going to run out of time, Monique, and I'm just, I'm sad about that because there's so much good information that is shared in this book, inspirational. And one of the things that you mentioned, I just, it was a glimpse that I just my heart kind of soared a little, in part because my grandmother was one of those symbols of true love in my life, right? And I am now a grandfather of five granddaughters and two grandsons. And (laughs) so I get to be, there's almost no higher compliment than my granddaughter, Lena. She gave me last year, she says, you know, Grandpa, you are kind of like Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you tell a little vignette that happens in a school, walk down a hall and, hey, remove your hat. And it's a grandma. There's, there's volunteers in schools, but I can't imagine anyone better than to have grandmothers occupying our schools. Tell me a little bit about where that's happening and how that's happening, how it's working. Yeah, it's a school in Southern California, but I've also, that I described in the book, but I've seen this take place in different schools across the country where elders are invited to come into the school and volunteer on a regular basis. Some actually escort students to class, some, you know, just volunteer in, if the school has a school-based nursery, the elders are in those spaces. But the idea is that they are there to help facilitate a connection with young people in a way that really does, in my mind, represent an opportunity for true safety, not the presence of guns and law enforcement in the way that we have come to associate with safety. And so uh, the vignette I share is that I was visiting a school in Southern California, and I heard a woman whose voice, you know, reflected that she meant business, and she was saying, remove your hat. And I turned around, and she was talking to a student a young man who was much bigger than her and he looked at her and he removed his hat immediately and walked to class. Right? <laughs> and it was an interesting moment because, you know, I felt the brilliance of that was that, you know, our elders, you know, are important to our community and often 
like the young people, we relegate them to the margins of our society when they should be central in our communities in helping to facilitate and pass on wisdom to young people um, in meaningful ways. And so it was, to me, it was a beautiful connection around generational knowledge. It is a way that schools are thinking about adding meaning to many of the conversations they have about community by including elders in those spaces. And for young people, especially those who have the hunger, you know, that comes with not having a grandparent in their lives, it is healing. It, it is a space where they can have, I have many, let's put it this way, I have many community mothers. I grew up with many community mothers. And in, you know, the way that we have come to create many of our social spaces, we don't have those as prevalent in our lives anymore. And young people are showing it. And so everyone respects, I was like, everyone respects the grandmother. <laughs> everyone respects grandparents <laughs> in a way that recognize the value they bring to a conversation. And there's nothing more disarming than uh, an elder leading with love. And so, you know, for me, I think it's really an example of how some of our schools are being creative and also true to the traditions of our communities to say, we value our elders, we want them in our learning spaces, we honor what they bring, and the elders who come are celebrated by being called the grandmothers, even if they're not actually the grandmothers of the young people in the school, they're revered as grandmothers in a way that shows their intention and function in the school. And so um, I just love it. I think, you know, a number of schools have replicated models of community that either refer to elders who come into the space as, you know, mama so-and-so or father so-and-so or grandpa and grandma, just as a way for young people to easily connect with what their intention is in the school. But it is also an opportunity to, you know, hold on to traditions in a meaningful way. I, I'll just share, you know, in closing that I had an opportunity this summer to visit a school in rural Kenya that is a beautiful example of how schools are functioning to transform opportunities for girls in these spaces, girls who would otherwise face mutilation of their bodies or early marriage. They go to school and they're free from that condition. But also, they have the grandmothers come into the school to tell stories on a regular basis to the girls in those spaces. I loved watching the grandmothers, these Maasai grandmothers, come in. And though I couldn't understand what they were saying, I could tell that what they were sharing were these vivid illustrations of community and life in a way that connected the girls to their purpose and to their traditions. And it just felt like this is what we should be doing as much as possible in spaces where we want to build out skill sets that connect young people to their communities. Bring in elders to share the stories. The, the head of school and founder of the school said that the grandmothers are the keepers of the stories. And so the grandmothers in the keeping of stories can share that information can transfer knowledge and wisdom in a way that can be transformative. And I hope to see more of that.
and I hope to see it here as well, everywhere in the world, of course, but right. here in the United States. <laughs> and that's part of what you'll get a glimpse of and a pretty good size glimpse if you read Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls by Monique W. Morris, her website, moniquewmorris.me. Monique, I'd love to spend more time with you. I have a feeling that even better might be for us to get together and dance somewhere. And uh, if you want, I'll meet you over in Kenya or Rwanda or the Congo, where I've danced before, too. Right. I know we'd have a great time in the dance and the travels. But right now, I want to thank you for going many extra miles for the healing of our black and brown girls, for your artistry, your profundity, and your passion, for giving so many girls and young women an inspirational auntie to depend on and to look up to, and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much for having me on. The link to moniquewmorris.me is on nordenspiritradio.org. Follow the link from our site and get your copy of Sing a Rhythm, Dance of Blues, Education for the Liberation of Black and Brown Girls. You've heard clips in this program from songs referenced in the interludes scattered in Monique's book, like a bit of I'm a Woman performed by Coco Taylor, and just a snippet of God Bless the Child by the incredible Billie Holiday, and Nobody Knows My Name back in 2026. Bessie Smith created it, but you heard part of a wonderful rendition of the song by Queen Latifah. Now we're going to send you out with a portion of a performance by Fantasia Barino-Taylor in 2010. The song is Collard Greens and Cornbread all connected with sections, chapters, or tracks in the book by Monique W. Morris. We'll be back next week for Spirit in Action, and we'll count on joining you here. This is Fantasia, Collard Greens, and Cornbread. Yesterday I touched you and told you that I was through. But today I'm with you. Ain't that some love? Tomorrow you might hate me and find you somebody new But today I'm with you Ain't that some love? The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 